They held me in a uh, jail cell, D-14, and it had a camera positioned in front of it so that it watched me, you know, 24-7. They never turned the lights off. Defense attorney Frank Carson, at 61 years old, found himself where many of his clients had been, incarcerated without bail at the Stanislaus County Jail. They purposely keep it cold. You're just freezing to death. So you wear all your clothes. You wear two sets of underwear. You have one jumpsuit. You get that, and then you try to get under the covers. And all the sheets and the blankets, everything is short. And so you're all in a fetal position trying to just stay warm. I I resented that. I could get a stub of a pencil, and I was trying to write motions and stuff. And so I was busy trying to help, but it was all futile. He ate alone in his cell. He was one of the oldest inmates. He was different in other ways, too. Well, I had all my teeth, for one thing. The vast majority of people don't have their teeth. They couldn't eat an apple. It's from meth. Everybody's using meth. Everybody. The district attorney's office notified the state bar of Carson's arrest in a bid to suspend his license. Carson said he had more than 80 criminal cases pending, including multiple homicides, and he began to refund money to clients and to refer them to other lawyers. All of a sudden, for the most important thing in your life that's ever happened, you owe more money than you're ever going to come up with, and yet your practice is going down the tube. After decades of ferocious courtroom skirmishes with the law enforcement establishment in Stanislaus County, Carson was inmate number 1376494. The colors of his striped jumpsuit indicated the seriousness of the charge. I have red and white. That's murder. From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Trials of Frank Carson. I'm Christopher Gofford. Episode 5, Prisoners. Frank Carson had anticipated his arrest, and he had turned to Percy Martinez, a veteran Modesto defense attorney and one of his best friends. He says, Percy, I trust you. He goes, I know all these guys want to represent me, but I trust you. And uh, he didn't have to say much more because I'm not going to turn my back on my friends. Martinez had been skeptical that prosecutors would ever file a case against Carson. It seemed too far-fetched, too crazy. Now, Martinez braced for a marathon struggle, and one of the first battles was over jailhouse protocol. 
When Carson was allowed out of his cell, his hands were cuffed in front of him and linked to a belly chain. There were leg irons around his ankles. Local judges recused themselves from the case because many had had dealings with Carson over the years, some of them acrimonious. So a judge was brought in from Santa Clara County, and the judge did Carson a small kindness. He allowed him to keep one hand free while meeting with his attorneys in jail, so he could write. But the sheriff requested that the order be reversed, and a new visiting judge, Barbara Zuniga from Contra Costa County, the judge who would preside over the rest of the case, ordered both of Carson's wrists back into cuffs. He was, after all, a maximum security inmate. Chains on his legs, chains around his waist, and chained like this so he could just barely walk like this. It was just so disturbing to me to see Frank, a person, and I know Frank's not dangerous. You go down the hall and people would say stuff. How's it going, Mr. Carson? I kind of walked hunched over and they would say, uh, keep your head up, Mr. Carson. Once with his hands cuffed behind him, Carson tried to get down the jailhouse steps in his flip-flops and plunged forward onto his face. Carson injured his back and the pain became chronic. Stress elevated his blood pressure to dangerous levels. He did not trust the jailhouse doctors. I wouldn't give him blood because I couldn't trust him. You were afraid they would plant your blood? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. One of Carson's first tasks was a careful study of the probable cause warrant that underpinned the charges against him and his co-defendants. This document was 325 pages long. It called Carson a significant danger to society. It described how he supposedly masterminded the Byzantine criminal conspiracy surrounding the death of Corey Kaufman, the scrap metal thief authorities claimed had died trying to raid Carson's property. Yet a good part of the warrant dwelled on incidents that had nothing to do with Kaufman and long predated his death. It was a catalog of Carson's supposedly authority-flouting behavior. Some anecdotes went back 10 years like the time Carson was trying to get into the locked courthouse for a verdict and tugged at the door as a courthouse employee held it. She turns around and tries to do this thing where she's shoving it closed. And I said, I've got to get in, okay? And I was just physically more powerful. The warrant cast his behavior in a sinister light. This incident was, quote, indicative of inappropriate and violent response and of his lack of respect for the court. Another time during a trial, Carson seized his client's collar dramatically to demonstrate that the young man had used a gun in self-defense. I grab him and I yank him back and, and probably up a little bit. Anyway, he burst into tears because it surprised him. And all of a sudden you see this kid for what he is. He's a little kid. He's little. He's about 5'3". And let me tell you something, I saved that boy. According to the warrant, the incident showed Carson's, quote, tendency for inappropriate and violent responses. In 2011, Carson got a summons for jury duty. And to get out of it, he responded with less than total solemnity. He'd seen many prospective jurors complain about bladder control issues. So he riffed, quote, I have behavior control issues and authority issues that long trials exacerbate. 
he joked about getting messages from his demon-possessed dog, a reference to the serial killer, Son of Sam. Do I regret that? Yeah, I do regret that. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean anything, and it's just stupid. According to the warrant, however, Carson's response to the jury summons showed his, quote, lack of respect, if not contempt, for the court. It also suggested, quote, that he does have behavioral control issues, which is relevant to this investigation. A few months after that incident, when a client didn't show up for a hearing, Carson riffed on the many possible excuses that might be offered. He wrote, quote, Choose one, defendant forgot, couldn't be bothered, dog ate docket paper, conspiracy of fate, car stolen, bus missed, bus stolen, lawyer's fault, parent's fault, I'm special, the Federal Reserve is unconstitutional. And these are excuses also that judges and lawyers see every day of our life. We see hours on end, it's excuses, hours on end. The Stanislaus County authorities saw this not as harmless japery, but as, quote, Carson's lack of respect for the court and the legal process. Carson and his defenders characterized the warrant as an amalgam of absurdities and said its focus on his character gave away the DA's real game. He was being charged not for what he'd done, but for who he was. Carson anguished about his co-defendants. In a way, he blamed himself for their plight. He believed they'd been arrested as a way to get to him, that their pain and fear were meant to torment him, to goad him toward copping a plea, to win his surrender. He had never shied from personal attacks on his law enforcement adversaries. Now the DA had come after him in the most personal possible way. His wife, Georgia, and his stepdaughter, Christina, were free on bail, but charged in the so-called conspiracy. And when he read the warrant in jail, Carson got an alarmed glimpse of what sort of evidence the DA planned to use against them. More than three years earlier, after Kaufman vanished, detectives had begun eavesdropping on Georgia and Christina's private phone calls. Christina was in her early 30s, a talented painter and illustrator, who was living in the family house on 9th Street in Turlock. Her mom was in nearby Modesto, where she lived with Carson. Christina called early one morning to say she'd inadvertently broken a window, banging on it in irritation at someone mowing the lawn. Oh, I broke the window. All right, we'll fix it. Don't worry. Is your hand okay? It's cut in a few places. I'm so sorry. Do you want me to come and shoot them? Are they still mowing the goddamn lawn? Well, that was, you know, you hit me, and I didn't think I hit it that hard, but it just shattered. We'll have to do something about them. I was just, I was so sorry. I didn't mean to break it. I just... Oh, it's okay. Don't worry. To authorities in Stanislaus County, this was not an innocent conversation between mother and daughter. And Georgia DiFilippo's remark about shooting the offender could not be dismissed as a harmless joke, as a function of her dry, mordant sense of humor. According to the warrant, quote, G. DiFilippo does not laugh at the statement and there is no joking type response from C. DiFilippo. Later in the conversation, G. DiFilippo also states that they would have to do something about them. 
This is relevant to show the first response to problems at the property involved at least the threat of violence regarding issues with the neighbors. Below Christina's window, investigators believed Carson's supposed henchman had murdered Corey Kaufman three months earlier while he was trying to steal some pipes from the weedy, junk-strewn lot. Investigators had been steered to this theory by a motley pack of local junkies, parolees, and thieves, some of whom had been stealing from this property with impunity for years. The DA's baleful interpretation of this mother-daughter exchange reflected a great deal about its approach in the case of State v. Carson. It was a glimpse of what lay ahead for Georgia and Christina Filippo and for others in Frank Carson's orbit. Five days after that conversation, a detective knocked on Christina's door and soon after called her. So when Corey went missing on the 30th, do you know if you were even home at that time or if you had seen anybody on the property on that day? I know that was a while back. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't really have any idea. You know, I don't remember seeing like any significant Okay. Uh, I know it was a. It was a. It was a Friday night. I know that for sure. Uh, I was probably home because God knows I don't have a leg. <laughs> the deputy's questions unnerved her, and Christina called her mother, wanting to know if she should do anything. They were like really being aggressive. I think someone fingered like Frank for having aggression issues or something. I don't know what to do about it. Don't do anything about it. Just do what you've been doing. But don't worry, Chrissy, there's certainly no dead body over there. I know. I just don't like police coming around and being intimidating. To authorities in Stanislaus County, this was not the voice of an innocent young woman slightly rattled by a deputy questioning her about a crime she knew nothing about. It was instead confirmation of a cover-up. Christina Filippo was, quote, asking what she needs to do, confirming that F. Carson and G. Filippo were both involved in the ongoing conspiracy regarding the property and how to handle the police. And she's telling her mother, hey, this officer came to talk to me, what should I do? Um, and it wasn't a conversation like, yeah, this officer came to talk to me about a missing person, isn't that weird? This is Prosecutor Marlisa Ferreira explaining the state's interpretation of the exchanges you just heard. She lied about where she was that night, and she's saying, I, I don't know, I never saw anybody, I never did anything. And when she calls to ask her mother, um, what should I do, and her mother tells her, do nothing, and that's exactly what she does. She's covering up the lie, and she's furthering the conspiracy to obstruct justice. When investigators raided Carson's 9th Street property, they found no evidence establishing that Corey Kaufman had ever been there, much less died there. They did, however, find texts on Christina Filippo's seized computer that they would use against her. They were supposed to show she knew her stepfather was planning vigilante violence against people who stole from him. In one text, 
Georgia alerted Christina about thieves breaking into some storage bins. Quote, Frank's flipping out. He'll be there tonight to lock them. He will be packing a gun, so stay in the house. Another time, Georgia texted Christina, Don't suppose you want to put on dark clothes and slip out to the back and peek to see if we're being robbed blind tonight? Christina did not relish the assignment and replied that the neighbors scared her. Georgia, I don't want you to confront anyone. Just quietly go out through the garden and along the fence and see if you hear anything. Carson installed a motion detector on the property, and Georgia texted Christina, If it goes off tonight, he wants you to call him. He's going to hang out in the field for a couple hours. These texts were exchanged months before Corey Kaufman disappeared. They did establish that Carson was worried about his often looted 9th Street property, worried enough to surveil it patiently for thieves, sometimes with his gun. What they did not contain was any reference to the Carsons doing actual violence to intruders or any encouragement that vigilante justice ought to be visited on them. Still, the DA sees these texts as ingredients of the case. Why would Georgia suggest a call to Carson rather than cops if the motion detector went off? Investigators rejected the innocent explanation that everything from tumbleweed to feral cats might set off a motion detector, and not every alarm warranted a call to police. In these texts, they saw the Carsons hatching plans to take the law into their own hands. Along with the texts on Christina's computer, investigators found her artwork. She was fond of the horror and fantasy genres, particularly of Neil Gaiman's Sandman graphic novels. Later, she would read a detective's assessment of her work with a feeling of violation. They'd done sort of a like a little psychological profile of me, and there'd been images of my artwork, and he talked about how how violent these images are, and and you know, and how it might you know point to my nature and all this kind of stuff. What images did they seize on that they found so objectionable? Or <laughs> my mom jokes about my my. Are like, oh, they're just like fat, naked ladies wrestling each other and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> you know, the ones that he was looking at was sort of uh, like a self-portrait of wrestling like the shadow figure <laughs> thing. And then um, there was another one uh, with uh, sort of a, like a dog creature coming out of this mouth. <laughs> and like, I don't know. I mean, and so, yeah, so he was, just, oh, you know, this is very disturbing. And so I... I, I, I've been trying to do art, but I'm like afraid of doing something disturbing. So I've, I've done like a lot of pictures of my cat <laughs> and, and like trees. I, I think it's just kind of, it plays on one of my base fears of always kind of being, <laughs> you know, I was always kind of a weirdo, you know, and, and thinking that that could be sort of uh, used against me. Like, oh, she was a weirdo. Christina left home for the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and in September 2013, detectives followed. Four cops found her in front of room 105, where art class was about to start. They had deliberately chosen to surprise her and to confront her in front of her classmates. Christina told them that her stepfather, Frank Carson, had given her a letter saying she was not to talk to cops without a lawyer. 
This is the response from Stanislaus County Sheriff's Detective Corey Brown. Unless you have something that you're concerned about being arrested for, why would you need an attorney? Right, and I know that's kind of a standard line that you guys give to people. I really do feel like I'm being put in a very awkward situation. Like, this is very intimidating for me, and I don't like this. I'm not trying to intimidate you. Even the little Christina had told them so far would be used against her and her family. Carson was a defense attorney and had told her what defense attorneys tell people as naturally as dentists instruct people to brush. Don't talk to cops without representation. To make this easier for her, he'd given her a letter she could hand to those who might approach her. To authorities in Stanislaus County, this was not the rational exercise of a constitutional right, but part of Carson's plan, quote, to obstruct justice by keeping investigators from talking to any witnesses. Despite Carson's warning to his stepdaughter, detectives succeeded in getting her to talk for a half hour. Detective Brown asked where she had been on the Friday in 2012 that Kaufman disappeared. She said she was probably cleaning the house, maybe watching the fantasy cop drama Grimm on NBC, which was her Friday night show. She said her stepfather wasn't capable of hurting anyone. Brown asked if there had been any thefts on the property after Kaufman disappeared, and Christina acknowledged that they had seemed to stop around then. What she regarded as an innocent answer would be woven into a narrative of guilt in exactly the kind of way her stepfather forever cautioned about. To investigators, it meant Kaufman's death had sent a successful message to would-be thieves. As the warrant phrased it, this would indicate exactly what F. Carson wanted to happen. Investigators were not done with Frank Carson's stepdaughter, Christina Filippo. They wondered if she knew anything about Carson's campaign for district attorney. Was he running for DA to derail the murder probe? Maybe Christina would confide in someone she trusted. And so, investigators turned to one of Christina's longtime friends and convinced her to let them secretly record her while she called Christina. At the direction of detectives, Christina's friend asked her what she knew about Carson running for DA, trying to make it sound casual. Christina said it was his way of, quote, fighting the power. Urged on by detectives, her friend kept trying to steer the unsuspecting Christina into a conversation about Carson. Compounding the ugliness of the betrayal encouraged by Stanislaus County authorities was the emotional vulnerability of the target. Christina had not heard from her friend for a while, and now she wept with relief that her friend had not forgotten her. Christina, maybe even more cautious than she'd been when cops had visited her, did not say anything they could use. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm too afraid to read the On the day of the arrests, Georgia and Christina were at a family cabin in the hills of Strawberry, California. The phone began ringing early that Friday morning. 
Georgia answered. She learned that a SWAT team was taking her husband into custody and that there is a warrant for her too. Then mom pointed at me <laughs> to indicate that there was also a warrant out for my arrest. And I just, I just kind of remember that sensation. I just, it felt like, like ice water had just been kind of poured over my head. It went slowly, you know, down my body. <laughs> you know, you kind of realize in a second that your, your life is over. Christina learned she was being accused of participating in a conspiracy involving people she had never met. These CHP officers who I'd never heard of in my life, the one kind of sensation or feeling that had always kind of been present through the whole thing was just this sense of unrealness, you know, and, and like, you know, and who are these people they're, they're talking about and, and how could this be a thing? They were booked. Georgia was charged with first-degree murder with the special circumstance of lying in wait, plus a firearm enhancement, plus conspiracy, plus false imprisonment. Christina was charged with conspiracy to commit a crime and accessory. They made me take, like, you know, a pregnancy test, like a urine, like, you know, and they're booking mom and they were really having a hard time filling all the charges. There's so many charges against mom. And then when they did me, they're like, oh, you know, just accessory uh, after the fact and conspiracy to obstruct justice. You know, that was kind of easy, you know, <laughs> like compared to mom. They came in to take mom away. And um, I just remember, you know, we were crying and like, you know, kind of clinging to each other. My client did not understand why he was there, what was going on. Obviously, he knew that there was an investigation going on. The police had been out and talking to them on numerous occasions. And they, meaning he and his brother, um, felt that they were being harassed by the investigators. This is Hans Jachtensen, the defense attorney who represented Daljeet D. Atwal, one of the brothers who ran the Pop and Cork liquor store. He and his brother were accused of being Carson's muscle and held without bail on murder charges. I think their plan the whole time was, we're going to arrest as many people as we can and we're going to throw them in jail. And, you know, what we have, we have a huge leverage. We have them in custody and we can get them out. All they have to do is to tell us what we want to hear. Jachtensen said his client was offered a deal. He'd get a break on the murder charge if he talked. All he had to do was give up Carson. There was nothing to tell them. Defense attorney Jai Gohill, who represented the other Atwal brother, Baljeet, or Bobby, told me he came to regard the case as a rare gift. Most of the cases that we do in criminal defense, our clients are either guilty or the evidence strongly suggests that they're guilty. And um, rarely do you get a case where you know the client is innocent. And, and I saw this case, um, I knew right away, once I researched it, that these people had been absolutely persecuted, victimized. What's more, Gohill felt he was defending his profession. The man at the center of the case was a defense attorney. As Gohill saw it, 
The state wanted to destroy Carson for doing his job aggressively and effectively, even if sometimes nastily. So the case threatened every defense attorney. It's because he was so successful that he was targeted. I mean, yes, he's got some issues in his personality where he doesn't let things go, you know. And I think I've told Frank this. I, you know, sometimes I wish he would just walk away from stuff. But he's, that's just not how he is. He's always been like this. But that is one of the things that makes him a great lawyer. Gohill was astonished at how the Atwal brothers' longtime friendship with local police officers acquired such suspicious significance in the DA's eyes. Gohill said the liquor store had been a little oasis for officers who went there. It was a really convenient place for police officers to stop. You're on the road, you're going, you know, 100, 200 miles a day back and forth. The amount of police officers that were friends with these two immigrants who had thick accents, um, Indian accents, uh, was pretty remarkable. It seems like those would be red flags to someone who, if someone was supervising this case, would be like, well, wait a second. These guys have hang out with cops all the time. Are they really going to be committing a murder? Bobby Atwal told me about the experience of being arrested and being held with his brother. They arrested me in front of my kid, and my son took really, like, kind of hard way. First day in the jail, it was kind of like, are you still sleeping? Maybe you're getting a bad dream. You just still don't believe it's what's happening to you. It's just crazy. It was awful. It's just like, I don't have a word for this thing. It was... And then all those, you see a lot of violence, a lot of other things in jail. Yeah. And we just have a hard time. After a few months, he says, jailers transferred him and his brother to an isolation cell for reasons he never understood. He told me the area was used for problem inmates, and he asked a jailer why he and his brother were being held there. Then I talked to a sergeant over there. I asked him so many times. I said, why are we here? We did, we did nothing wrong. We never disrespect anybody. It just work on you so hard. It just, and then so cold, like the cell was probably 40 degrees in there all the time. You, you like feel like you want to commit suicide and you have nothing. There's just so many thoughts in your mind. Because you sit in there and you can't talk to nobody. Me and brother just sitting there looking at each other's face. After the arrests, members of the legal community in Stanislaus County were reading the arrest warrant, some of them with mounting bafflement. Among them was former prosecutor Doug Maynard. And I kept thinking, well, where's, where's the meat? Where's the evidence? Where's that smoking gun? It's not there. It's all innuendo. It's all inferences. This sense of the case's flimsiness was widespread among the defense attorneys hired to fight the charges, and it contributed to the suspicion that the DA did not really want to take it to trial. The DA maintains the charges were all provable. They could not otherwise have filed them in good faith. But defense attorneys believed the plan was to scare defendants badly enough to extract guilty pleas and declare it a win. Fighting a murder case could take years for the accused, and it promised financial wreckage for all but wealthy defendants. And as they fought, they rotted in cells. This gave the DA enormous leverage. Nobody had more to risk by fighting and a greater incentive to cooperate than Walter Wells. He was 33, the youngest of the accused who had worked for the highway patrol. He had a 10-year-old daughter. He was held on $10 million bail on a murder charge. 
being in jail, it, it was absolute loneliness. You know, it's one of those things that's really hard to describe. It uh, was an absolute horrible time. I was confined to a small quarters by myself. My days were extremely long. You never knew what time of the day it was. There was no means of, of knowing what time it was. I was confined in my room 47 hours out of 48 hour period. I slept as much as I could possibly. Anything to take my mind off what was taking place. Remember, the DA said Wells' cell phone had pinged off the same areas in Turlock as Corey Kaufman's phone in the days after Kaufman disappeared there. Wells had an explanation. He lived and socialized in the small city, so why wouldn't his own phone be pinging there? The DA rejected this in favor of a theory that the patrolman had been carrying Kaufman's phone in hopes of throwing off investigators. And he decided to do this on the very week he was busy making funeral plans for his father. I believe my experience was, was a lot different due to the fact I was a, a former law enforcement officer. I was segregated from everyone else. You know, people were quick to judge me those that wore the badge who didn't even know me. They thought I was a disgrace to everything that the badge represented. And it was hard. It was very difficult to deal with that. You, you know, you take so much pride in, in your accomplishments in, in life to become a, an officer and to have everything just taken from you in a blink of an eye. And to have others look down upon you whether it was in from a, a raised voice, looks of disgust, putting handcuffs on you. It wasn't very gingerly. It was, you know, in a manner uh, with a lot more force than, you, than it's needed to do so. At one point after he'd been in jail for months, deputies took him aside to strip search him. Both deputies were, were pretty hesitant, and I ask them, well, why is this happening? Just level with me, tell me what's what's really going on. They end up telling me that um, it was something they didn't want to do. The orders came from above them, from their superior. And so they conducted the uh, strip search um, just inside a uh, shower room area. You know, it's one of those things that's engraved in your head. It's absolutely humiliating. On top of that, other inmates knew he'd been an officer. His face was in the newspaper, which circulated through the jail. The paper would float around within the unit, too, and, you know, here's my picture on the front of the newspaper, and here I am, you know, in one of those cells, and it was just constant harassment. Whenever I spoke to Frank Carson, the mention of Walter Wells' name seemed to cause him particular pain. Carson did not have a son. The defense attorney often described as a bitter nemesis of cops had developed a strong paternal feeling for the former highway patrolman. They made him a project in a different way than they did me. Walter was the youngest. He was younger than the Atwalls. And it dawned on me that if his dad was my age, that he could have been my boy. 
and I felt responsible that he was collateral damage to them wanting to get me. They did cavity searches to him. They didn't do that to me. And it just seemed like such a nice boy. And to have all this happen to him, he lost his house. He had a $400,000 home. He had beautiful cars and a nice girlfriend. And he didn't even know me. If Wells decided to turn against Carson and other co-defendants in exchange for his freedom, he'd look like a beacon of credibility. In contrast to the haggard cadre of parolees and junkies the state planned to deposit on the witness stand. A champagne witness, as Gohel put it. The best possible witness that the prosecution can have. A good-looking, intelligent, sincere police officer who would testify for them that these guys did it and confessed to this or did this or that. As the accused prepared to fight the case at a preliminary hearing, the DA worked to find fissures among the defendants. Who was willing to cooperate? How much were they really willing to sacrifice for each other? Who could endure so much pain? To save themselves, many could be expected to act in rational self-interest. They would clamor for a safe seat on what DA investigator Kirk Bunch liked to call the witness bus. This was a feature of the criminal justice machinery that gave aggressive defense attorneys like Frank Carson a sense of mission when they threw sand in its gears. The system incentivized defendants, the guilty and innocent alike, to admit to certain crimes, no matter how far-fetched, and thereby hope to avoid total ruin. Now, Carson was trapped in the machine himself, in a red and white jumpsuit, in a chilly, solitary cell. He did not have illusions about the nobility of human nature. Who would get on the bus? And who would fight? The Trials of Frank Carson is written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producers are Lori Galaretta and Sabrina Fang. Alex McGinnis is our composer and sound designer. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Our editor is Steve Clow. Our executive producers are Ben Adair at Western Sound and Abby Fentress Swanson at the LA Times. Special thanks to Shelby Grad, Julia Turner, and Kimmy Yoshino. If you like what you're hearing, become a Los Angeles Times subscriber. You'll get special bonus episodes of this podcast. Hi, it's your host, Christopher Gofford again. Here's a reminder that LA Times subscriber support makes podcasts like this one possible. Subscribe now to get exclusive bonus episodes that will give you the story behind this show. We will share interviews with experts who will weigh in on the case, and we will play extra tape that sheds light on important parts of our story. Subscribe today to listen. Go to latimes.com forward slash exclusive dash podcasts. Thanks.